This is Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. We have two and a half weeks left to go in this general election campaign and of course on December 12th we'll all be making our way to the polls to decide who will be running the country in 2020 and beyond. We've now had Labour and the Conservatives manifesto so we've got quite a lot to talk about today with my co-host Paul Francis. How are you doing Paul? I'm good thanks Ollie. Good, good. Uh, And for those of you uh, wondering, don't worry, I'm sure you're itching to know. Yes, Gillingham and Raynham MP Remen Chishti's cat's bill is featured in the Conservative Manifesto. Yeah, an issue he's not stopped talking about for the past year. Very Uh, important. Yeah, there you go. The cat lovers rejoice. Uh, Paul, is it fair to say things are getting quite serious now? Well, obviously it is for the cat vote. But uh, yeah, (laughs) I think that the, you know, now we've had all the manifestos out, it does kind of mark the sort of run into polling day on December the 12th. And uh, I think uh, if you're uh, keen uh, on spotting political VIPs, I think you may see some activi- activity on that front in Medway Towns and Kent generally over the next couple of weeks. Because what tends to happen is that the parties fan out to all parts of the country, mainly marginal seats, it has to be said, uh, and then gravitate back towards London and the southeast the closer we get to polling day. So I think we'll probably be in line for a few uh, headline-grabbing visits. I was going to say, because you know, all the drama of Canterbury last week, it feels like it's been relatively quiet for local politics in Kent. Yeah, I, and I guess that's inevitable sometimes. And I think one of the things that the political parties sometimes underestimate or fail to appreciate that... Uh, Five and a half weeks of a campaign is quite a long time. There's a lot of time mm. to fill in with kind of uh, uh, announcements, policy programs and projects. And uh, uh, the, the more time there is, the more forensic the scrutiny tends to be. So, And I think that's probably why you're seeing some of the uh, parties having difficulty getting their message across. Yeah, and speaking of political heavyweights visiting uh, Kent, although I... It feels weird to call Matthew Hancock a heavyweight. <laughs> um, he visited uh, Canterbury Hospital um, and he did speak to KMTV and this is what he told them. This hospital is on the up, but it's also very old and it clearly needs work. The reason that I've come to Canterbury is to say that there will be investment going into this hospital if the Conservatives are returned to office. We've got the largest hospital building programme in a generation and it is absolutely crystal clear to me as Health Secretary that this hospital needs investment and is going to get investment. Paul, what are your thoughts on uh, on, on Mr Hancock's... Well, I think the, the Conservatives are still banging this drum uh, and claiming that they're going to be building 40 new hospitals, although I think uh, Anna Firth, the Conservative candidate in Canterbury, chose her words very carefully when she spoke about the, uh, the surprise, allegedly, uh, visit by Matt Hancock when she said uh, he'd committed himself to upgrades and investment Uh, words which don't actually translate into a new hospital when you think about it. So I think there's some careful kind of language being deployed around this, although uh, the Conservatives insist that uh, they are going to build 40 new hospitals. And this is the issue, isn't it? It's about making sure that you... Uh, pledge things to potential voters without over-promising and then completely under-delivering if you do eventually get in power. Yeah, and I think uh, what was interesting about the Conservative manifesto this week was that it was quite a modest uh, uh, programme, actually. They didn't go into huge amounts of detail and it was kind of fairly generalised. They didn't say anything about social care because they probably remember what happened to Theresa May when she inadvertently got uh, stuck in a rut over the dementia tax plans back in 2017. 
So if you look carefully at the, uh, the, the Conservative manifesto, it's actually short on quite a bit of detail. It talks about, uh, doesn't actually mention social care whatsoever. Mm, well, you sort of um, headed up our first topic of conversation today, which is the Conservative Manifesto, released on a on a Sunday of all yes. days. Is that is that significant in any way? Well, we had the Lib Dems in a nightclub, so you know the Conservatives <laughs> on a Sunday, not in a church hall, but yeah, it's, it is quite unusual. I'm guessing they probably think that uh, they get a bit more attention from people who might otherwise be uh, preoccupied with work Monday to Friday. Uh, I don't think there was any great significance in it, uh, particularly, but uh, it was it was an interesting choice. Mm, there were, I mean, there were some um, suggestions from some political commenters that I, I read, which was it makes sense to put it out on a Sunday when voters are less inclined to be reading the news. Perhaps um, political commentators aren't available straight away. It's going to yeah. take a whole twenty-four hour news cycle to start talking about it. I don't know how much of that is tinfoil well, hat, really. If I think if that was the case, and I didn't, didn't don't think it's particularly successful. The one thing that I, I found interesting was that uh, Conservative uh, Central Office was uh, tweeting about contents of the manifesto, but you couldn't find it online for quite a while after Boris Johnson had finished his speech. I think I saw you tweet out actually finding out if anyone actually did have yeah, a copy of it. And uh, I wasn't alone in uh, having trouble locating it. Not not great uh, design there if you're going to No, it did seem your... it did seem a bit odd, but then again, you know, uh, maybe it was just a kind of technical blip or whatever, but uh, it was there eventually. So the manifesto itself you say it's quite general quite slim some people say it's only about 56 62 60 there we go he's counting yeah 62 pages against the green party 92 pages which left me with an ethical dilemma about whether i should print out the green party manifesto (laughs) when i was thinking about all those trees um so yeah it was and i think that's again a reflection of the fact that uh, you know the conservatives don't want to get pinned down too much on uh, potentially contentious policy proposals is that a good thing, though? I mean, should we be, if, if it's going to be the manifesto for a party running the country, should they not be including as much detail as possible to give voters as much chance to understand what the party's going to do as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think if you contrast it with the Labour manifesto, which took a completely different tack, it was kind of like a week-long political Black Friday from Labour. They, they were giving out stuff left, right and centre. Um yeah, I, I don't know. We talked about this before. When manifestos create a kind of certain uh, energy in a campaign, uh, and people like me look for kind of gaps and uh, uh, points of interest, but by and large, they tend to be forgotten. Tend to be forgotten quite soon. And you know, I, I reckon that by the time people go to the polls on December the twelfth, they probably won't be entering the polling station with any thoughts about. Oh yes, I remember what I read in the manifesto. Isn't that a bit sad though? Because that that should they should be the exact things that we are. Yeah, I mean, I think manifestos are kind of like frame the arguments in some ways. Uh, so it's about creating the right kind of impression. We talk about the optics. Um, it's it's more about what it says in the round rather than necessarily specific proposals. And we've talked about um, the hospitals, forty new hospitals, which is a pledge, uh, fifty thousand nurses as well one, one other thing that i picked out and this is just one thing that feels quite quite kent specific is um no new grammar schools being built under a conservative government a bit of a flip-flop issue for the tories over yeah, the last decade isn't it it's i mean the, the conservatives there are a lot of conservatives who think that it's a vote winner to uh, uh drop the existing ban on completely new grammar schools it's kind of an article of faith for many conservative uh, supporters 
Uh, I think Boris Johnson is probably aware that uh, it has the potential to be a divisive issue. When he came down during the leadership debates uh, to Kent, uh, I asked him about his position on the grammar schools and whether he'd be lifting the ban on them. And he didn't want to talk about it. He said his focus was on kind of uh, equitable funding, helping make sure that the kind of uh, those who uh, may not have the best uh, social... Uh, those who are kind of from poorer backgrounds had the same kind of opportunities. Uh, and some people would say, well, that's an argument for grammar schools. But he didn't really want to get into it. So uh, in a sense, no surprise that it wasn't there in the manifesto. But it, that probably will disappoint some Conservatives, particularly in Kent. Mm. And it always does feel like a Kent issue because obviously grammar schools are kind of... Uh, it's, it's always been a contentious issue in this county, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we've had uh, a couple of proposals recently for uh, one by Kent County Council to develop one of these annex grammar school sites uh, on the back of a demand for places in Seven Oaks for boys uh, boys' places. And that follows on from the creation of uh, uh, one of these satellite campuses uh, in Seven Oaks two or three years ago for girls, which uh, is part of the Wheel of Kent Girls Grammar School. So there are lots of people that sort of see those developments as a kind of... Uh, uh, pushing the boundaries of the existing legislation, which doesn't permit entirely new grammar schools. And I think, you know, you will see in a few years' time those those annexes actually, because obviously the numbers are going to grow, they will, in a sense, become de facto new schools. Mm. And uh, obviously one of the... I guess one of the, the, the biggest things about this manifesto, it's slim, but it really hits its point home, which is what Boris Johnson's been doing in these debates as well, which is get Brexit done. That's that's kind of the overarching important facet of this manifesto, yeah. is it not? Yes. Get Brexit done underpins everything in the Conservative campaign, basically, because they say if they get Brexit done, they can move on to some of these other proposals uh, and concentrate on the, the, the issues that, that matter to people. And, of course, Brexit matters to a lot of people, but they're making this big connection between uh, we'll get Brexit sorted, unlike Labour, who will go into a period of uh, renegotiating a deal. Uh, and Boris Johnson is underlining that by saying he'll bring back the withdrawal bill before before Christmas. Mm. And, the, and the forward by Boris Johnson in the manifesto, it makes that quite clear that it that, that is exactly what they're fighting against. I think, I, I can't remember the exact number of times that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are mentioned in the forward, but it's almost every paragraph. Right. That's the, <laughs> you've, re you've read the forward in more detail than I did. Perhaps I... too much, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that it, it is going to be quite a, a brutal election in that, in, in that case, because they are very much attacking each other on this Brexit issue specifically. Yes, uh, but if you you know tuned into any of the kind of leaders' debates that we've been uh, having in the last uh, week, then uh, I think there's a lot of people who are kind of uh, uh, less convinced of this uh, kind of tit-for-tat argument, are less impressed and a bit underwhelmed by the kind of repetition of these kind of sound bites. Um, so I think there is still time for the parties to... Um, perhaps be uh, not as not in terms of getting their message across. It's going to come under more scrutiny in the in the run up to December the twelfth, which can only be a good thing. Um, uh, so we also since we've last done a podcast, we had the Labour 
manifesto, one that's, that people are touting as a radical manifesto. Yes. Is, it, is it radical, Paul? Well, uh, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think if, if, if you equate radical with uh, investment and spending money, then it definitely is because it's the costings of the proposals in the Labour manifesto have been put at £82 billion a year, which is twice as much as what their 2017 manifesto uh, costed. Mm. Um, I, I think that uh, there, there's a bit of window dressing around this kind of radical, bold, ambitious programme. You know, they are words you tend to see lots of parties use when they're putting forward their programme. However, you know, renationalisation, stroke privatisation of different services, uh, huge public sector pay rise, uh, free broadband, you know, there, there's a lot of goodies being promised in the Labour manifesto, which uh, are kind of, you know, you d when you compare and contrast with the specifics of the Conservative manifesto, is is quite significant. Those um, goodies, in inverted commas, that are being given out in the manifesto, is some of that perhaps a smokescreen to the fact that the Brexit issue itself will be a contentious point if Labour were to win the power back in Westminster? I think it's a it's a kind of uh, a, a weak point for the for Labour definitely and uh, when when uh, and it, you could tell it's a weak point because when Jeremy Corbyn during one of these leaders debates uh, started to say our position will be to renegotiate and he got as far as renegotiate and the audience just started laughing basically um, so I think Labour's position on uh, Europe and Brexit has been slightly more difficult to explain to voters uh, and I think in that respect, then it's it it has its uh, kind of uh, it has its difficulties for the leadership to explain properly. And um, so, oh, yeah, one thing I was going to mention quickly well, right. about that was that Jeremy Corbyn did finally come out, of course, with his position on where he would be in terms of a new deal, and that would be wait for it, drum roll, to be neutral on the on the uh, new deal, which many have said is not a position. To be neutral. Well, he, his argument is he'd be a broker of the New Deal and therefore it'd be better for him to stay neutral. And I thought, well, if he thought that was a good idea, why has he waited so long to declare his hand on that? And I think he's been put under pressure uh, by voters, actually, to be more explicit about where he stands. And forced his hand on it. Um, Antonio Weiss, who's uh, the Labour parliamentary candidate for Tunbridge Wells, was on your show, Paul and Politics, on Friday. This was his response to the £82 billion annual spending figure in that manifesto. I think that needs to be put in context of, effectively, our public sector has been starved of investment over the last 10 years due to Conservative and, I'm sorry to say, Liberal Democrat policies of austerity, which flew in the face of any sensible economic uh, uh, sort of viewpoints and so as a result it's time that we reinvested back in and if you look on a European level we're proposing around 4% of GDP to be um, spent in, on investment that is in line with many other leading European nations so no. these aren't outlandish proposals. Paul is 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 that gonna does that money actually add up has, has anyone gone to the length of trying to work out if that's even feasible? Well I haven't. <laughs> what are you I, doing? Then I fail my maths <laughs> O level so I'm not the best person with figures uh, but some economic experts have costed it. And uh, I think one of the problems is that, you know, when you get into this exchange of numbers, people don't, uh, it's very difficult to people to grasp, you know, what does 82 billion mean in terms of uh, implementation costs? Uh, and you'd be, because Labour would say, well, renationalisation of privatised industries won't cost us anything because we'll just assume, take it back as a government asset. So uh, I, I think the tit-for-tat exchanges between the parties over numbers and costings is not awfully helpful. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast.
So um, disinformation spread by parties, Paul, it was something you were keen on talking about this week yes. specifically. This obviously got kind of thrust into the public eye when the Conservative Party rebranded their Twitter profile and called it Fact Check UK during the first debate between Corbyn and Johnson, as if it was some kind of authorised fact-checking site. Some have said the account should have been banned for deliberate disinformation spreading. I mean, is this the beginning of parties taking these tactics to a new level? I think it is, actually, and I don't think any anything's going to stop it. In, in a sense, it becomes a bit, we become a bit like America with these kind of attack ads that uh, they used in American elections. Uh, and, you know, social media is supposed to be uh, helpful in adding to transparency and accountability. And yet you see, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the Conservatives uh, deploying this uh, uh, way of fact-checking their, uh, the pledges made by Labour and pretending to be kind of an independent fact-checking website. Uh, they've obviously denied it. But I do think that uh, this is something which is, again confusing for voters you know if you're uh, uh, looking for kind of unvarnished and kind of independent analysis of uh, what the parties are, uh, are doing it's sometimes a bit of a grey area. Anything is interesting it's uh, almost like you've got to think of it as is this good marketing or disinformation because one we spoke about before was the was the Brexit party uh, Leaf, you you were quite intrigued by it when it got put through a letter Yeah, box. Brexit, the Brexit party, had a, I thought actually it was actually politically a very clever ruse and that was to post uh, kind of its uh, leaflets, information leaflets about the party in the form of uh, those those cards you get when you've missed a parcel being delivered to your house and it <laughs> said, you know, headed Brexit party, you may have missed this, etc. Your Brexit has not been uh, And I, I, you know, I was uh, I was duped by this, you know, I was amongst those, oh, that's interesting, and I actually picked it picked it up, and uh, obviously thinking that I had missed a parcel and it might be a nice present someone's given me, um, but it's actually turned into a party political kind of leaflet, which you know, I think that was quite clever. I suppose the difference between doing that and um, something like the fact check is that that it's very it's very quickly once you've looked at that Brexit Party leaflet that it was clear that it was about it yeah. was not one of those. Whereas the Conservative Party branding their Twitter as Fact Check UK could very much sell disinformation to people, yes. but they then might not get rectified later on. Fake news and all that. Fake news, exactly. Yeah. And actually, one of those again back to your show on Friday, Ben Chapelard, who's the Liberal Democrats candidate in Tunbridge Wells, was also on the program, and, and you sort of took him to task for a party leaflet basically designed as if it was a newspaper. Let's hear a bit of that now. Our leaflet is very clearly a mock newspaper. You've got yeah, a copy there. Yeah, I've got a copy, there. Of, the, copy um, of it here. It it's is. On, on, on we the produce it very regularly. Um, it's saying there's a big surge in Liberal Democrat well, support. That's yeah. what we're finding on the doorstep in Tumbridge Wells, and as and it, reflected in last but, week's But anyone, anyone picking this up off their doorstep would, would think, oh, well, that's a newspaper. Well, anybody who knows Tumbridge Wells would know that that's not one of the two newspapers that is served by Tunbridge Wells, either the Times of Tunbridge Wells or the Kent Sussex Courier. Yeah, and you've put Labour down at uh, 12% when in 2017 they came second and you well, came the, third. The bar chart is very clearly labelled and the imprint tells you who's published that newspaper. I mean, is that is that the same on the same level of disinformation as the as Well, the it's, a, it's, it's kind of... Uh, it's a different way of uh, spreading... Uh, what should we call it? Disinformation. It's a bit too far to call it black propaganda. That sounds a bit too kind of uh, Soviet. Sounds intense, so, yeah. yeah. But uh, again, you know, nothing wrong, nothing unlawful, nothing in breach of the electoral laws or the electoral reg reg regulations or guidance on literature that parties can produce. 
Uh, but to all intents and purposes, the Liberal Democrats, and they've not just done this in, in, in Tunbridge Wells, but they've done it across a string of constituencies, uh, sort of uh, purporting to show that uh, in that particular seat, usually a kind of conservative marginal, that the Liberal Democrats represent the only significant challenge and uh, that a vote for... Uh, Labour is a way to vote, and they dress it up as, uh, as kind of, I think, the Liberal Democrats won for Tunbridge Wells talked about a surge in support for Ben Chappellard and mentioned a kind of council by-election victory where they'd uh, unexpectedly taken a seat from the Conservatives. And then just in the tiny print at the bottom of the uh, newsletter, you see it's it's published by the Liberal Democrats and nothing really to do with any newspaper. See, that, I think that that feels more deliberately like misinformation because somebody could take that as... And, and saying that there's a huge surge in support because one of the things that Ben said on your programme is that that's what they're seeing on the doorstep. Isn't that what all candidates <laughs> yeah. say when they're doorstep? Yes, and you can see it. So we, we touched on this before about the kind of, you know, the, the, the twi Twitter posts where constituents, uh, party activists also have had a fantastic response on the doorstep. This is, in a sense, a kind of printed variation on that. Um, you know, whether people get uh, uh, duped by this is, a, is open to question, but, you know, uh, an interesting tactic, shall we say. Mm, absolutely. And uh, one more thing uh, to end the episode. We need to do our jargon of the week. Paul, what's the jargon of the week? Well, it's kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a buy one, get one free uh, oh. jargon of the week. So I, the two words I've picked out, which I, I don't, again, don't really mean anything. Uh, unleashed and unlocked, you know, uh, the, the parties are going around talking about their plans to unleash the economy and unlock uh, investment in in the UK once once they get over Brexit. Um, I mean, I always apply the kind of, if you went into a pub and had started a conversation about the election, would you say, hey, have you heard about what the Conservative plans are going to unleash on the electorate? Or have you heard about the Labour's plans for the NHS? They're going to unlock a lot of potential. So uh, two kind of words I'm not too keen on and message to parties, avoid if you can. Do you think those candidates do go into pubs and use those words? No. <laughs> not that I've been in many pubs recently during this campaign. Sure. Well, we don't believe that, Paul, but fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can believe it. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us again. Another episode of Talking Points. We'll be back next week. Any? Uh, did we got any ideas what, what what could have happened? What might happen between now and next week's episode, Paul? Uh, no, is the short answer. But I mean, I, <laughs> I do think that you know we're probably in that period when we're be going to begin to see uh, kind of more political visits to Kent. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, if you're a VIP political watcher, keep your eyes peeled. There we go. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast. 